Good morning, everyone. Morning. I'm Jeff. Lovely to see the sunshine this morning. Good sign for one week's time when we have uh, picnic take two, uh, when the ground is a bit drier and the air is a bit less um, wet as well. That'll be good. Hey, today we're in week one, the very start of just a short two-week series called One Minute After You Die. What happens, what's going to happen one minute after you die? And I want to begin the message and begin the series by praying because talking about this topic could prompt some feelings could bring up some memories and could cause fear. And we'll lighten the mood from time to time with a laugh together if my jokes and stories are any good, but this is an important topic. Uh, And the way we're going to approach it is we're going to be looking mainly at principles that we find in the New Testament of the Bible, things that Jesus said or his his first followers wrote as they began to understand what he'd said uh, and, and explore what those passages and those quotes and statements say about life after death and heaven and hell and things like that. And we do that because the New Testament was written by people who knew Jesus who walked with him, who heard his actual voice as he taught them and spoke to them and and knew what it felt like to be treated by him, the Son of God. And they are a reliable witness of who he is, the fullest expression of God. And also because we believe that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, inspired them as they recorded Jesus' words and as they reflected and, and tried to make sense of it and wrote letters to each other and to other churches. So, so that's our, our, our source and our inspiration for where we're going today in this series. But what I want to do as we begin is to pray that God would help me and help you to understand that and to process what it all means. Because I recognize we're not just talking about ourselves and our life and our eternity. It's also this series is going to make us think about our loved ones. There may be some who have already died. And so let's just begin with prayer and ask the Spirit to, to guide our thoughts and guide my words as we jump into it. So Father, we thank you for the gifts of Jesus. We thank you for the gift that we have today of the Bible to understand you Uh, through him and particularly through his life. And God, I pray this morning that you would guide my words and that you would guide our thoughts and help us to understand what you have to say about what happens one minute after we die. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about what happens one minute after you die, but, but here's the thing. You're not going to die. Your, your physical body will die for sure, but you will continue to live on somewhere after your physical body dies. Here's what we read from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for we know that when this earthly tent is taken down, that's a, that's a nice way to put it, about our bodies, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, when that tent is taken down, we'll have a house in heaven. That's a cool contrast. When this earthly tent is dismantled, then we'll have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God Himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies, which is, is bizarre that heaven came to be portrayed as like disembodied ghosts floating around when, when what Paul said was we will not be spirits without bodies. We'll have new bodies, they'll be fantastic. He says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But 
But it's not that we want to die to get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, what we want, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. This is an important distinction, and we're going to come back to Paul's wrestling with this tension right at the end of the message. He's going, okay, I, the future is, is good, but it's not that I, I just, I'm done here and I just want to be done with this life and this body because it's, it's difficult and painful. It's more that what is to come is so good, I'm ready. I'm ready to leave this behind, this earthly tent, to take up this heavenly body. He continues on a couple of lines later in verse 8. He says, yes, we are fully confident. We would rather be away from these earthly bodies because for then we will be at home with the Lord. So, so what are we supposed to do then while we're waiting as we go about life and go, okay, our goal is then to just make lots of money. Our goal is, is to become famous on YouTube. That's, that's the goal. That's the dream. Our goal is a bigger house just to have my own room or a, a better car, a red fast car, a higher paying job. What, what, what does Paul think our goal should be? Well, he says, so whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. He's talking about Jesus. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this body. So our goal is to live for Jesus, to do the things that make a difference, not only now, but also will make a difference then in eternity, because we will all stand before Christ to be judged. What you do matters. Your life matters. What you believe about eternity determines how you will live your life today. Because if you believe, for example, that you're an accident, that there is no God, we're just here by some amazing cosmic mathematics, then it doesn't really matter. And so you just live selfishly for pleasure and everything is about now. But, for example, if you believe that you were created on purpose by a good God, that has purpose for you in your life and you'll live somewhere for eternity, then that will shape the way you live now. Your soul will continue to live, but where? Heaven, hell, what are those places? Where are those places? Who goes where? Will it be horrible? Will it be boring? We're going to explore some more of those forever questions next Sunday. But today what I want to do is talk about three things that happen one minute after you die. We talked about the first one already. Our physical bodies die. In Hebrews chapter 9 we read, Just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. That's what we celebrated in communion. And he'll come again. This time not to deal with our sins, because he already has. This time to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Each person is destined to die once. And I don't know what it is about my brain or, or my childhood trauma, but there's nothing like getting on a plane to make me think about death. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just the bizarre idea that you're in a metal tube filled with people hurtling through the atmosphere. Maybe it's because plane crashes always make the news. But I did some research this week to confirm what I'd heard, that plane crashes are statistically very rare. You are statistically very, very safe when you are flying in a plane. The the, the odds, the chances of you dying in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million. 
That's it's not impossible, but they're very good odds. Like you can count on those odds. There are other things, for example, that are way more likely to kill you that you don't worry about all the time, I presume. Um, your bed, for example. Your chances of dying from falling off a bed or a chair are one in two million. Okay, so planes, one in 11. Chance of dying by bed, one in two million. Those aren't as good odds. Um, your chances of dying by ladder are a little bit better. One in 2.3 million people die from falling off a ladder. And bee stings. Bee stings are very dangerous. Your chance of dying by bee is one in only 79,842. Now, that's getting a little bit more risky. But if you're afraid of swimming because of sharks, it's, it's not as bad as you fear. You're more in danger on land because cows... Cows are 22 times more likely to kill you than a shark. So next time you're going for a swim, I mean, it's North Queensland, you have the crocodiles to contend with. I couldn't find the stats on that. But if you're afraid of sharks, be more afraid when you're out on the farm because cows are 22 times deadlier. But no matter how it happens, no matter where or when it happens, your body will one day return to the dust. So what will happen one minute after you die? Your physical body will die. And the second thing that will happen is your soul will separate from your physical body. So while your body stays behind and dies, your soul continues to live. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't be afraid of people, but you should have a healthy respect for God because your soul continues to live and God is sovereign over both body and soul. So after your funeral, while everyone else is still coming to terms with their loss and they're telling funny stories about you while eating quiche and having a drink, you will never be more alive than in that moment. Your soul will continue to live even when your body dies. Now, Jesus illustrated this when he was speaking to Mary and Martha, who were devastated because their brother Lazarus had died. Now, by the end of John chapter 11, Jesus will have raised Lazarus from the dead. But when he tells them to open up Lazarus's tomb, they protest. They say, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Or um, if you are reading in the old King James version of the Bible, Mary says, Lord, by this time he stinketh, which is what sisters always say about their brothers whether they're alive or dead. But Lazarus's physical body did come back to life that day in a miracle that is different to the general principles that we talk about. But the principle of what Jesus said to Mary and Martha in, in John eleven twenty five 25 remains. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. So what happens to the soul of a follower of Jesus after their body dies and the soul separates from the body? When do they receive the new body that we read about earlier? We don't know. We don't know the details and we don't know the exact timeline, but we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that on the day that Jesus hung on a cross, as his body was dying, he hung in in between two criminals, two thieves. And one of them realized his need for forgiveness and he called on the grace of Jesus. 
This is Luke chapter 23. This man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, today you will be with me in paradise. Where, where exactly is that? What exactly is that? We're not completely sure, but we know from what Jesus said that it sounds like paradise. Like way better than hanging on a cross with nails through your hands and your feet. Way better than any place you could imagine on earth right now. Some place that you and I should want to go to. So what happens one minute after you die? Your physical body will die and your soul will separate from your body. And then at some stage, we will each face judgment. The Apostle Peter wrote it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. So he says, remember that this world, this life is actually not your home. You're just passing through. This is a short period of time. Your life is a short period of time in the eternal scheme of things. And at the end of this life, we will be judged and we will be rewarded or we'll have the opportunity to be rewarded according to what we do. Now, there's more in the New Testament about what this judgment looks like. And and from everything that we read and understand, as we put it all together and reflect on it, it seems like there are two main judgments that each person has the opportunity to face. And we're going to talk about each one. But first, just remember, judgment doesn't necessarily mean something bad. It can, but remember just what the word judgment means. You know, judgment can mean like, you know, divine consequences, that God is sending judgment on you for doing something wrong. The word can mean that. But, but more generally, the word judgment just means that someone is making a considered decision. And so when we think of God judging, we see God, the wisest being that has ever been, the eternal God of the entire universe, in all of his wisdom, is able to judge wisely, to reach a considered decision and conclusion about reality. That's what God's judgment is about. Now, the first judgment that we, we think happens from what we read in the New Testament, we call the great white throne judgment. Okay, now this comes from Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. The Apostle John has a vision of this. And he says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation is a very symbolic book, okay? It's not a textbook. It is full of images and analogies. And, and nearly everyone agrees that no matter what, what confusion and controversy there is about the middle big chunk of Revelation, like when is it about? Where and when is that supposed to happen? Who is this person? Lots of, of uncertainty about that. Everyone is convinced the end, which we're in here, chapter 20, this is a future thing. This is a vision of what is to come, a vision of heaven, hell, and one minute after you die. Now, the lake of fire does not sound good. We're going to talk about that next week. 
But the book of life does sound good. And here's why. Jesus is the son of God. He was born into a human life and lived a sinless life. He's called the Lamb of God who died for the forgiveness of our sins. So when Jesus died, he died in your place instead of you. And so that means when you come to Jesus, like the thief on the cross did, when you come to Jesus with that same attitude, you recognize you need forgiveness, you call on the grace of Jesus, it means that you are saved like that thief on the cross was. And when you're saved and forgiven of your sin, your name goes in that book of life. You're not saved by what you've done. You're saved through your faith that Jesus can do that for you. And just like that thief on the cross, when you call on the grace of Jesus, your name is written in that book in heaven, that book of life. And when your name is in his book, it can't be taken away. God won't erase it. God doesn't have his finger poised over the backspace key, ready to remove your name when you do something wrong, because the things that you've done wrong have already been forgiven if your name's in the book. When your name is in the book, you are God's child at the great white throne judgment. But when he looks at you, and when he looks at that book and he finds that your name isn't there because you never called on the grace of Jesus... You tried to do it yourself or you just tried to do nothing with your life, then your next place of residence is not a place that you will like or enjoy. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, perhaps one of the most confronting things he ever said about this. In in verse 21 of Matthew 7, he said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. The great white throne judgment is not based on how much good you did or what good you did. It's not based on how much you gave to charity or to the church or how many people you served or helped. It's not even based on how many miracles you did, which is good because I've not done many miracles. It's not a long, it's it's not a list, okay? I haven't done one yet. Thankfully, the great white throne judgment is based on relationship. You know, Jesus said, I never knew you. That's, that's relationship language. We never really knew each other. So is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? As you sit here today, as you're watching online, is your name already written in that book? Well, it depends on your relational connection to Jesus. It doesn't depend at this point on how much good or bad you've done. The first judgment is based on whether you know Christ and have called on his grace and acceptance and forgiveness. And the second judgment we call the judgment seat of Christ. See, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the verse we started with, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. This is fun, hey? Are we enjoying this? This This is serious stuff. 
Now, where do we get this idea of a seat? Like, there's no seat in here. Why do we call this the judgment seat of Christ? It's because the word here for judged is a Greek word, ancient Greek word, bema, B-E-M-A, but with a little thingy over the E, bema. Um, And it's the same word that they would use in Greek sport and eventually the Greek Olympics. It was where the judge would stand after the race, after the contest, after the wrestling match was done. After all the participants had had a go and they'd run the race, the judge would stand or he would sit on the bema, the judgment seat, and it was from this point that he would hand out rewards or judgments based on how the athletes did in the race. Now, this is not about qualification. The bema seat wasn't about qualification. If you make it to the front of the bema seat and you're standing in front of the judge, you've already qualified. That's what the great white throne judgment is about. That's about qualification and it's all based on relationship with Jesus. Whether you know him and have called on his grace. But, but then you're in. You're in the contest, you're in the wrestling match, you're in the race of life. And the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, is then where the rewards are given out. You're already in the race, you had a go, but what you do matters. And so that's where the judge would hand out the wreath or hand out the medal or hand out the trophy based on how the race was won and fought for. You were faithful, here's your reward according to what you did with your life. It's really important, super important to understand the distinction between these two judgments. They might look the same on the surface and when we just read, you know, like read from start to finish through the New Testament or through any part of the New Testament, even one book, we'll often see different parts of these judgments. So it's only on on looking at the whole and reflecting on it, we can see these distinct two. The judgment seat of Christ is not about forgiveness for your sins. That's what the great white throne judgment is about. If your name's in the book, you're already forgiven. You're already in the race. But if your name is not in the book, you don't make it to the judgment seat of Christ. There's, There's no point. Because nothing you can do could ever be enough to receive a reward from Christ if you're not in relationship with him. The judgment seat of Christ is what comes next for those whose names are already in the book. And this is when Jesus acknowledges us and rewards us, it says. This is is not a common thing that I think about. Jesus rewards us for what we've done with our lives. So we're saved according to God's grace through Jesus. But then we are rewarded according to what we've done. Okay, We can only be saved by grace, but we are rewarded for our works. And when you've been accepted by Jesus, when you have his spirit living within you, you're a new creation. And you've received this free gift, this free gift of salvation because of what Jesus has done. You don't have to work to get that or, or, or achieve that status or salvation. But what happens is you do then want to live for him. You want to live for his glory and his purposes, and you will be rewarded or not, at the judgment seat of Christ for what you do with your life after that point. What you do now matters in eternity. So, so what will you be rewarded for? What will you be judged by? Let me share a few things that Jesus and his first followers talked about. At the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be judged or rewarded for how you treated people. How you cared for people on the underside of society. How you cared for someone who was being bullied, who was hurting. How you cared for someone who was broken. 
How you treat people now matters in eternity. Jesus said that you'll be judged by your motives. So not just what other people see you do, but why you did it. Why you do what you do, that matters. And he says you'll be judged by the words you speak. Now that's a confronting thought. You will be judged or rewarded by Jesus for the words that come out of your mouth. Sometimes it's worth keeping those words on the inside. As, as much as they want to try and force their way out, if you are thinking about eternity, it's worth keeping those words on the inside. Duct tape your mouth if you have to, but do not let those words come out of your mouth against somebody else. You'll be judged by how you endure suffering. We all suffer in different ways, at different points in our life, but the way that we go through that, if we endure suffering patiently, Jesus said we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded or judged based on what we did with what we had, with our resources. Were we generous? Did we give? Did we share? Or do we keep it all for ourselves? And we'll be rewarded. You'll be rewarded when you help other people come to call on the grace of Jesus. If you help someone else get to that point, like the thief on the cross got to, of realizing they need Jesus, there is a special reward. There's a crown, the New Testament says, in heaven for soul winners, people who share Jesus with others. So imagine this. Imagine with me your life is over. Your physical body has died. Your soul has separated from your body. At the great white throne judgment, your name is in the book. All the stuff that you have is left behind. And you stand before Jesus. You, you, probably, you probably can't stand. You're probably flat on your face. And he looks down at you from his bema, from his judgment seat. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I have rewards for you because of the way you lived your life. You served children every Sunday for years. When all the adults were having fun in church, you were serving kids. And having fun as well, but faithfully serving them week after week. There are many people here today in my kingdom because of what you did. You were the brightest light in your office. Even though there were times when everyone else laughed at you, you were faithful to me. You could have done what was easy. You had options and choices. You could have done what was easy, but you did what you believed was right. And no one else saw, but Jesus will say, I saw. You shared your faith with people. You prayed and you prayed and you prayed. And to some of you, Jesus will say, thank you for visiting me when I was in prison. And you're like, don't remember that. You're like, thank you for feeding me when I was hungry. And you're like, pretty sure I didn't feed Jesus. Thank you for caring for me when I was in need. And you're like, all right, he's definitely got me confused with someone else. Well, let's just go with it, all right? Let's just go with it. And, and you'll be confused, but he'll look at you and say, whatever you did for the least of people, it was as if you'd done that for me. 
What you believe about eternity will change the way you live today. Not, not quite done this morning. A little bit of a longer message. But before I finish off, I want to invite you to dig deeper this week into this topic. Um, on the screen, that QR code and the link under it, whatever's easiest for you, will take you to a reading plan um, with the same name because we're borrowing this, the concept of this series and the plan from a church that's done it before. Um, just six days, a devotional thought, a few passages to read and reflect, and then if you want to in the Bible app, you can share with others what stood out to you or questions that you have. Um, I'll send the link out tomorrow as well to you. Um, this will open, it's online only, but opens on any device. If you have the app on your device, it opens in the app. Uh, if you don't, it'll open in your web browser and you can join in there. Our small groups also have discussion questions for this series for the next two weeks. So if you're in a small group, talk to your leaders about that. And if you're not, but you're like, I want to talk about this with some people, the questions are online. So they're with the YouTube video that's up right now or going up right now. They're on our website as well if you wanted to process this during the week with some people. When it comes to living for eternity, thinking about the things we're talking about this morning, I don't always do very well about living my life with eternity in mind. Um, now I'm a pastor. It's, it's like it's my job to do this. But I also have a whole life outside of my job and outside of my work. And the things in my life can become so much that I barely even think about heaven, let alone live with eternity at the front of my mind. And, and you might think, if, if you're like me, you might have thought as you grew up that the older you get, the easier it will be to become eternally minded. Like, you know, young people that are younger than me in the room, you look at me and you're like, oh, this guy's got gray hair coming through his beard. He must think about heaven all the time. He's just in the holding paddock, just waiting until he gets there. There's this opposite force at work, though, which is at work all through your life, but it does seem to increase that the, the lure of this world, the gravity of stuff and stress and pressure pulls us and pulls our thinking away from thinking about heaven and thinking about eternity. Even, even my prayers can become so focused on just what's here and now and the short-term temporary stuff that's all going to disappear one day. I need a spiritual reset regularly. I need to be like spiritually recalculated to get me back on the right path. You know, it's like what your phone or your GPS does. If you're following the map somewhere and you just take a wrong turn because you've been distracted and off you go, what will happen is that your phone or your GPS takes a deep breath and then recalculates and finds the way to get you back on track to where you need to be going. And sometimes I'm on track for eternity, like what, the way that I'm thinking and the way that I'm acting and choosing and living my life, I, I'm, I'm heading towards what's going to happen one minute after I die. But I get distracted. I get overwhelmed. I get all consumed by things and people and stuff and decisions and stress and temporary things that aren't even going to matter in a year's time, let alone I get a matter in eternity. And I'm off track and I drift towards those things and I need the Holy Spirit to take a deep breath to be as totally calm as my GPS is, because he's not, he's not upset. He knows I'm going to do it, but he's ready to help me recalculate and get back on the right path again. 
Now, I promised that we'd come back to the Apostle Paul wrestling with life here and life there. And and I'm excited, but I've got purpose. And what do I do with this? Here's what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Um, And you can can hear the, um, the tension almost in his voice. He says, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. We need to keep this tension. You might look at that and go, oh, this guy did not have it all together. I can't believe we read his writing still today. He was a mess. But we need to have the kind of tension that Paul lived with all the time. To go, I, I, I'm here, I've got to live here, and I know it's better. Because there's people that God wants me to interact with and love and serve and help. And, and, and they're here for me as well. So for us, it's better that I'm here. But if I don't think about eternity... If I don't ever think about what happens one minute after I die, I'm going to get completely off track. We need a fight to keep that eternal goal front and center. Jesus, whether I'm in this body or wherever I am, my goal, my goal is to please you. One day your heart will beat for the very last time. And at that point, there's no do-overs. You don't get to go back and go, oh, if I'd just done this differently, more rewards. I I, I wish I'd taken Jesus seriously. There's no recalculating at that point. So if you find yourself more concerned with this world, whatever it is, football, and how good were the Matildas last night? Shoes, the degree, the house, the the popularity, the car, the the next trip, if you find yourself more consumed with those things than pleasing Jesus with your life, then ask God to help you cut the roots off that thing because they won't last anyway. So ask him to help you cut the roots off those things now because they won't matter in eternity and ask him to help you recalculate and get back on track, back on the path that leads towards eternal life you're just passing through. I'm just passing through this life. So whatever you do, wherever you are, get on the right path to relationship with Jesus and on the right path to pleasing him. Let's spend a couple of minutes in prayer. I want to give some space first because you might not have had a chance for your thoughts to catch up with yourself or with what you want to say to God. And I'll just try and give voice to what some of us might want to pray today. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space. Guide our thoughts, our memories of the past and our hopes for the future.
And God, first of all, as we pray, we just want to recognize before you the people that we have loved that have already died. And whatever happens to them is, is out of our control. And for some of us, that weighs really heavily on our hearts. Because we don't know where they were at with you. Or we're pretty sure we know, and, and, and that hurts even more. And so today, God, we trust them into your hands again. We trust that you're wise, that you're good, and that you are love. And we don't know what that means for some of the people that we have in mind, but but we trust you. We want to trust you. We place our trust in you again today. And it's the same for the people that we know and love that are still alive and and we know they don't have a relationship with you. Or or they do, but they're kind of walking away and and, and they're a long way off the path now. And, And God, we place them in your hands as well. If there's anything that we can do, any way we can serve, any way we can share to help them, Lord, would you lead us to do that? Give us, give us courage and give us a graceful approach. But really, God, today, this message, all the things we're thinking about, really, it's about me. Each one of us, that, that's the person that we can influence. They're the decisions that we can make. And so if there's anyone here today that has realized this morning or is unsure this morning about their relational connection to you, I thank you that you made it so easy with the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And for anyone here today, anyone watching online today that, that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm at that place. What we're saying in that statement is we, we recognize you're not just a human being. You, you're way more. You're the son of God. And what happened on the cross is enough to make us okay and forgiven and right with God. And so Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And for every area of our lives that we realize we're, we're way off track. We've said words that should never have come out of our mouth. We wish we could take them and put them back in our mouth and wish they never came out, but they have. We've made decisions that we regret so much. We've, we've been selfish in, in so many different areas. Thank you that every person here today has another chance to live for you with a view on you sitting on your judgment seat, ready to to give out rewards for the way we lived and suffered and served for you.
captivate us with that thought, convict us with that vision. Nothing else really matters except your approval. And for however many minutes we have until the moment when we die, we want to live for you and your approval. Would you help us to do that today? Recalculate our path, I ask in your name. Amen.